was reading this morning, um, Paul David Tripp has New Morning Mercies book, and I was reading tomorrow's, because I'm always ahead of the game. And uh, actually, today's was kind of boring. But <laughs> I was reading tomorrow's, and, uh, and he said that God never sends you on a mission without going with you. I thought that was pretty awesome. So standing up here, terrified as I am, I'm not by myself. God is right here. And I'm glad about that. Once upon a time, when I was a little boy, I had a dog named Brownie and two cats named Ashley and Charcoal. And one day, we decided to go. When I put the kids to to bed when they were when they were little we'd always tell a story like and that's how I would start every story and some days we'd go fishing and some days we'd go to um, out in the in in the hills and the scenes are set in western Kansas we lived seven miles west of Dodge City on Fort Dodge Road and if you go on the map, our house is no longer there, J.D. tells me. So, um, but that uh, is an old farmhouse. But we lived on 11 acres out there. And um, that, when we had a, I can't tell you what an impact that place made on our family. It's four kids, all a year apart. Bless your heart, Mom. They... Uh, but we lived out there, and it was just a comfortable farm. Lots of, it wasn't really a farm because we only had like a Shetland pony for a little while and chickens, and okay, it was a little bit of a farm. But we lived out there, and we could go anywhere. This was a lot simpler times. And so we could go out in the, in the hills and wander around and find Mr. Hatfield's horses and pet them. We were not supposed to do that, but my dad's not here anymore, so it's okay. And, but he's listening from heaven and he's going, I thought so. And, or we go playing Mr. Hatfield's Corral. That was really a bad idea. They would know, he would know we did that because we had horse manure on our feet when we came in. He said, you've been in the corral again. How did he know? Anyway, it was a great place to grow up. And my favorite, I was thinking about this the other morning. I was driving to work. It, actually, I was driving to a client's. It was before 6 a.m., and there was this great red ball of fire coming up. The sun was signing up. There was plenty of moisture in the air. You know all the physics, and it looked awesome. And I was remembering when I was a kid laying in the grass, and it was the weeds, actually. We didn't have any grass, but laying in the, in the weeds in our yard with a kitten on my chest, I had a hoodie on, so it must have been um, winter, or late, late, uh, late summer, hoodie on, laying there, and I watched clouds for an hour. Can you imagine being able just to sit and, and do nothing like that and completely relax? If this were a movie, Right about now, as we come to the present time, there would be this horn honking, your phone going off, people yelling at you, because that's the kind of world it feels like now that we live in. There's all 
a friend of mine um, is actually a subcontractor of mine. We talk a lot about this, this life we call, and we've named it, he's actually named it, he's a pretty sharp guy, the on-demand life, which I thought is an accurate description of the kind of life that we go through. Everyone is making demands, it feels like, when you're having a bad day, or they may just be asking, but it feels like they're making demands on you, your kids, your spouse, your parents, your customers, your boss, everybody is telling you what to do all the time, and if it wasn't for this, I wouldn't know half of them, right? I made a list of I made a list of all the ways my customers can get a hold of me through this piece of junk, uh, this phone. It was 12, 12 different ways that I get notified of things that people would like me to do. And one day, when I looked in the mirror right before Labor Day, and I saw that expression on my face that looked like the harried. Um, I've had enough, and I'm, I'm ready to uh, go find some place to hide. I found this. I decided to go up to Starbrock because it's close, and as I get older, I don't, I don't like to drive. So I went up to Starbrock, found this cabin, and there was, I don't know how many cabins there were there. There were a lot of cabins, but it was on like 30 acres of ground, and you couldn't hear anything but the wind and the birds and and sometimes animals rustling around. They had steel roofs, so apparently, apparently they would drop an acorn on your roof and it sounded like a gunshot. But other than that, it was perfectly quiet. And you know the best part about this place? No cell reception. If I, I had less than one bar, if I rebooted my phone, I could send a text to Karen to let her know I was still alive and uh, in a burst, and then it would go away again. But that's the kind of, uh, that, and so I spent a couple of days doing that, and I started reading a book by um, Oliver Berkman called 4,000 Weeks, which is an eye-opening book. Um, Berkman is an eye-opening book because he's not a Christian. In fact, he great, takes great pains to pull from all the religion um, out there, but, but he has a lot of things in that book that make you think, and, and it made me think. The title comes from 4,000 Weeks, and this is the spoiler alert. The title of 4,000 Weeks, he estimated that if you live to age 70s, that's how many weeks you have to live. Now, if you have your calculator out, because I know you have your phones, um, and you calculated your age now until 80, let's give you until 80, because you guys look healthy. Um, how many weeks do I have left? And when I calculated that, I'm 66, when I calculated that, it was like, well, that's not very many weeks. And so it made me start thinking about um, the on-demand kind of life that we live. And so one of the ways I was doing that, and that's why I want to go into Mark chapter 6 this morning, because I was trying to find a place in the Bible, because surely the problem is this, right? It's got to be that I'm being harassed every day by my phone. Maybe I'm in a bad mood this morning. But I'm being talked about all the time my phone is trying to get me to do something, or people are trying to get me to do something. And surely, without a phone, it was better. 
So let's look at Mark chapter 6. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to walk through just a couple of verses at a time because this isn't the real sermon. This is still the introduction. So if you're keeping track, get comfortable. So, so context-wise, in Mark chapter 6, in verses 7 through 13, he sends out his apostles. He sends out the 12, two by two, and gives them authority over unclean spirits. So he's sending out his apostles to go heal the sick and preach preach repentance. So on Jesus' mind, and this is important later, it goes to state of mind according to the TV shows, Jesus is also mourning the, the loss of his cousin, John the Baptist. And he tells a story uh, of how King Herod's stepdaughter, I guess she would be, uh, asked for John the Baptist's head on a, thing, on a platter, literally, and that's, what, and that's what he got. But he died for, for just a whimsical reason. So he sends, so this is on Jesus' mind. He sends out the apostles, the 12. He is thinking about John. People are coming and going. It's pretty crazy around him. And we pick it up in, in verse 30. In verse 30. And he says this, as soon as I find it. One of the things I thought was interesting, it's been a while since I've been in the pulpit, and I had to go find a large print Bible so I could read it. I don't know when that happened. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. Come away by yourselves to a secluded place, that means desert, and rest for a while, and we're going to look for an opportunity just to decompress. How do you feel at the end of a trip? You, you just want to get home, right? I want to get home, get back into my, my uh, rhythms and things like that, so the disciples want to have a decent meal because they've been eating potluck. If you read, Jesus said, don't take food, don't take money. So they've been eating potluck for while they were gone, Whatever people were giving them wasn't their home food. And so they um, get home. They just want to rest. But they're also pretty pumped because they've been healing people and getting reactions from everyone. And they're pretty excited about this. And so if you were picturing this in your mind's eye, which is a way I like to, to imagine what I'm hearing in a passage of Scripture, you can hear the disciples uh, trying to trying to outdo one another in their stories. Oh yeah, well I hear, healed a guy that was lame. Well I healed a guy that was blind. And then you know what happened? And then these people came to me, and I had the most delicious meal. It was the only one I got there, but it was great. And somebody gave them an extra quote, and they're all telling stories, trying to tell Jesus that. All the while, crowds of people are coming in and say, "Oh Jesus, can I? Oh disciples, can I? Oh." And they, Jesus can't get the story out of them. So it was a little intense time. He says, come away. So now we go to verses 33 through 35. So they went by their away in the boat, that's in 32, to a desolate place by themselves. Now, many saw them coming, going, coming, saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on the, 
on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of time. Okay, picture this in your brain. There, I'm just totally relaxed. Ah, we finally are going to go to a place where I, it can be quiet. Probably was quiet on the boat. But, and then you come into shore and you look up and you see what we find out later. 5,000 people waiting on you saying, there he is! There he is! And they're all cheering because Jesus is coming. And, and the disciples thought maybe Jesus is too was like, ah, oh, they found us. And so, and they, um, and it says, when he saw, went ashore in 34, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, so how long did he preach? I was thinking about that as I was trying to time this sermon, which was somewhere between 20 minutes and 45 to an hour. I probably, I probably trimmed that down. But, but Jesus taught all day. And now I can imagine what's in the disciples or the apostles' head. Okay, it's the end of the day. Send them home. Hey, Jesus, I got a great idea. Why don't you send them all home? They made it here, and he says, why don't you feed them? Wait, they're staying for dinner? I thought, thought we could finally get a, a little break. And so, they, so he performs the feeding of the 5,000. Now, it's interesting, when you look at all four Gospels that describe the, this particular incident, there is no reaction from the apostles. So Jesus takes the five loaves and two fishes. Go read it if you don't remember this. But five loaves and two fishes, and he hands them out. And all 5,000 men, probably all men, one commentator said, because they were going to the Passover, all of them had plenty to eat, and they picked up 12 basketfuls of stuff from five loaves and two fishes. Kind of an amazing miracle. But there's no reaction at all from the apostles recorded in scripture. Maybe there was a reaction or maybe they were just harried and worn out from handing out food to all these people. And so they, um, um, so Jesus immediately in 40, 36 through, oh no, in 45 through 52, he sends them away quickly by boat. And in John, we find out John six fourteen. Um, gives us a clue. It says in John six fourteen, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So he sends them away because he can sense, and they already knows because he's God, he knows that this crowd is ready to move him to a place in his ministry that he's not ready to go yet. And so he he says, quick, get in the boat and get out of here. The disciples, the apostles were probably, were probably excited to get away from these crowds again. So he gets them, in the, gets them in the boat. They get away. Where does Jesus go? He stays there, and he goes up in the mountain, and he prays. And then the disciples are rowing, and... Uh, it says in verse 47, which I thought was interesting, that Jesus looks out over the water, sees the disciples. They weren't probably too many miles away, and they were rowing against the wind. Have you ever done that? 
it's hard. They're rowing against the wind trying to move their boat uh, on the Sea of Galilee to, the, to another place. And Jesus is alone watching them. And, he, and depending on the gospel that you're looking at, he, he gets on the water and walks across the water. Walks across the water. You know, we say that like it's a, oh, well, yeah, we just walked across the water. No, he walked across the water. You know, you sink in water, but Jesus didn't. And that in John tells us that John, or Peter, jumped out of the boat to walk on the water too, and he did for a minute. Okay, that's pretty amazing too. Jesus gets in the boat, and the wind stops. And I like in verse, um, um, in the verse, it's not in my notes here. In one of the verses, it says, the, 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 it is, they were utterly astonished. So all of a sudden, it clicks with the apostles that, hey, maybe this guy just isn't a teacher that's feeding us. Maybe this guy is something more than that. Maybe this really is the Messiah. And, and later in John chapter 6, they do declare him, where else are we going to go? For you have the words of life. So they understood at that point. But he gets in the boat immediately the wind stops and then um, they say they're utterly astonished the Greek says literally throw out of position so they were just like this is okay now I get it and John says immediately the boat was on the shore so they've been rowing this is 3 to 6 a.m. fourth watch 3 to 6 a.m. they got to be exhausted Jesus gets in the boat immediately and they're on the shore Maybe they have an hour off to, to relax a bit, and they look up. Guess what? Verses 53 through 56, it's happening all over again. 53 for 56, when he got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. So now, when you're exhausted and you're tired and you're a little harried and you just want it to end... It's going to start all over again. And it says here um, that uh, wherever he came, wherever he came, the, in villages, they laid their sick in marketplaces. Wherever he went, this is what's happening. So the apostles are realizing that this is the kind of life that they get to lead from now on. So does that sound familiar? All, every time you turn around, there's something else coming your way like a big train coming your way. I don't want to be negative about that, but that is, uh, that's a real sense of exhaustion. It's when, when, um, you, when you're a business owner and you pivot because of COVID and then you find out this fall, you get to pivot again and you, that's all you're doing. You're like, can the train please stop and let me get somewhere? But Jesus was able to handle that. And what I want to do is talk briefly about CUPA, Q-P-P-A. And it's designed to be not rememberable on purpose. Because in verse 31, he says, Come away from yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. They needed a quiet space like that cabin I was at. And immediately Jesus made the disciples in verse 45 get into the uh, ship and go ahead of him. They were protected. You remember John was talking about they were trying to make him king by force, and the disciples would have been part of that. He protected them. And then 
another P, Jesus went up on the mountain and prayed. K, P, P, and then A. He was alone on his land, on the shore, waiting for the disciples. So Jesus' way of dealing with this is Cupa, right? Which is okay. So all I got to do is these four things, and, and then I'll be rested. Nah. It doesn't work like that. One of the things I hate in a sermon, I absolutely think is ridiculous, is when you have four steps to an easy life, right? Or five steps to, because there is no five steps. Because we're talking about heart things. Don't get me started. But there is um, something compels us when we're in our life in the keep on in the midst of crazy. And sometimes I think it's the someday syndrome. The someday syndrome, you remember that movie Night and Day where Tom Cruise uh, was telling the heroine, I forgot her name, Benny with a heroine in the movie. He says, someday I'm going to go do this. And finally, at the end of the movie, he's drugged. You have to go watch the movie. It's a hilarious movie. He's drugged. He wakes up in a car. He says, where are we going? And she says, it's someday. We're going to do what you, what you really wanted to do all along. Someday. What he says cynically is someday is code for never. Or the tomorrow syndrome from Annie. So this song will be in your head. Thinking about tomorrow. Bet your bottom dollar that tomorrow there'll be some. It's only a day away. It's the tomorrow syndrome or the someday syndrome. We have this yearning for the day. And this is what um, he says in the book. When you can have everything under control and the fully optimized person you become can turn at long last to the things life is supposed to be about. Waiting for that day. But you know what? That day will never happen. And that's good news. And that's good news. While I was driving back from my retreat, I was thinking about this, my little retreat. I came upon some construction. Now I'm going to have to draw a picture, and I'm sorry for you at home. But, um, what I want to do is use the auditorium. So when I was practicing this yesterday morning, I'm staring at, at this. So, okay, in your mind's eye, you have to use your imagination a lot when I preach, there is, here is the left lane of I-39. You guys are the left lane. Say left. Okay, left, come on, say left. left. Yeah, okay, and you guys and gals are the right lane. Say right. right. Okay, in the middle is a gap between the two because it's a concrete highway, you need that way. I learned because Google's great that that's why the road expands. You need that expansion joint in the middle between the two things. So this aisleway is the expansion joint, all right? And it's completely clear of whatever goop they put in there. And, uh, and right here in the lane I was driving in, right about where Carl is sitting up this way, was a line. And there were barriers right here. And this was protected from the cars. Are you with me? Okay. This was protected from the cars. The gap was protected from the cars. And you know what was in the middle of the gap for about a quarter mile? 
flowers, dandelions, but still flowers. Life was growing. You know why? Because it was protected by the barrier. So this morning, this is the real part of the sermon. I want to look at this thing, the barriers that we need to put in our life, and God calls this the Sabbath, as the barriers he put in our life in order to get us through. And if you look back at the Cupa thing that I talked about, Jesus had those moments when he retreated, put the barrier of the quiet, of the, uh, the quiet, the mountain, the peace, and the aloneness that allowed him to keep going in a pretty intense ministry for three years. So what I want to think about is this morning, what I really want to look at is the Sabbath. Now, the Sabbath is not a prescription. The Sabbath is a heart issue. And so let's flip over to Hebrews chapter 4. And Hebrews chapter 4 is a really complicated passage. I reread it this morning one more time. I don't remember what time I got up. It's like 5. I wasn't quite awake. I said I should read through this one more time, make sure I'm doing the right thing, Randy, doctrinally. And I said, and I read through it one more time, and I said, boy, I didn't understand a word it said. It, but I know it was about the Sabbath. So I reread it again, and finally uh, felt comfortable about what I'm about to say. But it's talking about the rest of the people, the rest of Israel, where they refused to enter in to the rest of the Sabbath. And it said, and I want to concentrate on verses 9 through 11. In verse 9 it says, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may be fall, no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So it's important that the, that the people then understood what the rest was. And, and it's important enough that he says to make every effort. It's, a, it's a, an active um, word in the Greek, but it's an active word, but it means, but it's not an easy thing to do. And it's not a prescription, as I said before, it's a heart issue. Because something is pushing us to keep trying to prove ourselves. Now, I read um, a lot of fictional books. And one of my favorite authors lately is Charles Martin. Anybody read Charles Martin? Okay, good. So it is, he's got some really good stuff there. And one of the books I was reading um, about him, When Crickets Cry, When Crickets Cry, he talks about, um, he talks about uh, identity. He talks about the fact that, that we're trying to create our identity over and over again. When we, and you think about this in when you're um, young, you try on different identities. And you see, does this work for me? Does this match? And you put on, put on this identity. Maybe it's the way you dress. Maybe it's the way you act. Maybe it's the people that you hang around, but you're trying to put on this identity and try it out. But he said, Charles Martin said, and then I looked at the body of, of what, what I thought was his thing, but it was actually there's a whole body of, of work about that, that our, who we belong to 
we derive our identity about who, where we belong. So when I was growing up, uh, not, not in Kansas, but in Collinsville, down by St. Louis, when we moved to Collinsville, my dad was uh, pretty active in the church, and our job, our job was to do whatever dad said in the church. So we mowed the lawn, we uh, cleaned the church, we learned how to clean toilets in the church, and for a 13-year-old, that was an exciting time. And we uh, 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 did whatever construction projects came on the way. And I would say, why do, we have to, why do I have to spend my Saturday morning doing something like that when I'd much rather do? And then I couldn't think of what I had to do, so I had to go. So I went with my dad, or we all went with my dad, three boys, so he had plenty of labor. And we went to the church, and we worked, and we did the job. And I said, why do we do this, Dad? And you know what he said? Because you're a Combs. That was our, that's where we belonged. And where we belonged, that made our identity. And the amazing thing is all my brothers, and my sister for that matter, became fix-it kind of people. Sisters in fixes things, my brother fixes things, my oldest brother spent a career of his life fixing things. Isn't it interesting that where we belong created the identity? So what God is trying to do in the Sabbath, getting back to the Sabbath, is that it's a hard process, but first it reminds us of who we are. If we stop, if we have time for introspection, it's not like stopping work, but it is actual introspection, then we require that. Judith Shulovitz says... um, Puritan and Jewish Sabbaths were so exacting in intention, requiring extensive advanced preparation. They were meant to communicate the insight that interrupting a ceaseless round of striving requires a surprising act of will, one that has to be bolstered by habit as well as social sanction, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, so... So it's not easy to do the Sabbath because we have to stop doing what we're being told to do um, all over the place. But we have to remember who, where we belong, and out of that is our identity as the children of God. Because it requires a reason for us to not make up our identity. Because we can spend a lot of time making up our identity. When I started my... Uh, sub-business inside this business 13 years ago, my picture of an entrepreneur was a guy who worked 60 hours a week. So that's what I did. So I did that a a long, well, still do that, but I do that for a long time because that's the picture, that's the identity I was assuming as an entrepreneur. And now they're telling me that I was wrong all this time. But but that identity uh, affects the way that I that affects the way that I live. But what the Sabbath reminds us is that it, re- even, that it requires effort to remember that it's not on my shoulders, to, that to remember who we are and whose we are, Amen. even this crazy mixed-up person with all my flaws, is what God uses to build his kingdom. Amen. So it doesn't matter. It, we belong to God. That creates us our identity, and we don't have to go out and create another one. So the Sabbath rest, this is in the 
a theology of work proce- uh, project, the Sabbath rest comes down to an act of trust. To observe it, we must dare to trust God to provide for our needs rather than working all out to provide them for ourselves. This can be difficult both for those who struggle with the prospect of not having enough and those who struggle with the peril of not recognizing what is enough. I thought that was pretty good too. So, Dr. Jennifer, in closing, let's talk. I got two more things to do. I got plenty of time. So, let's. He said, Really? I thought he was going to be done early. Dr. Jennifer Roberts, professor of art history at Harvard, um, at Harvard. She has the first assignment, which strikes terror in the, in the uh, hearts of our students. And that first assignment is to pick a picture, a work of art, in a museum, get a chair, put your phone away, put your notebook away, and look at it for three hours. Three hours. And so... She, and so the author, um, Oliver, talks about this aspect of this. And you can imagine what's going on in your head when you sit down. Is the chair comfortable? Well, I don't think it's quite comfortable enough. Maybe I should get up and get a new chair. Or maybe I should do something else. And I looked at this piece of, he's looking at a painting. And I looked at it for a while, and I think I got it. Okay, I looked at the painting. I'm, I'm done with that. And then... Um, why am I doing this? I hate museums. This is what he's thinking. I hate museums. I don't even know why I go to museums. What was I thinking when I came upon this assignment? All this stuff is going through his head while he's sitting there. He said, it must have been an hour. I looked at my watch. It's been 17 minutes. But he says, after 80 minutes of sitting there, he began to notice things about the painting that he never saw before. He began to notice that the artist used a technique whereby, um, whereby the background had the same brush strokes as, as, the, as the painting subject's clothes in the bags that they were in front of. He noticed all kinds of things about this painting they would have never noticed had he not sat there for three hours and looked at the painting. And Dr. Roberts, um, she writes this. I want to focus today on the slow end she talked about fast learning and slow learning of this tempo spectrum on creating opportunities for students to engage in deceleration, patience, and immersive attention. I would argue that these are the kinds of practices that now need, now most need to be actively engineered by faculty because they are simply no longer available in nature, as it were. Every external pressure social and technological is pushing students in the other direction towards immediacy, rapidity, and spontaneity, and against this other kind of opportunity. I want to give them the permission and the structures to slow down. But you know, God's done that in the Sabbath. He's given us the permission, and he's given us the structure of being able to slow down from this. Like I said, this is a hard issue. This is not easy to do. And Karen said I shouldn't say this, but I really suck at this. Slowing down. That Lisa says, yes, we do. But, so I have some homework for you. Do we have a slide for this? 
by any chance? No? Okay. I want, there are three questions. We'll get them on the website for you. But, and Kristen says, what? We'll get them on the website for you. But anyway, these three questions I want you to answer this week because it's a heart issue. And heart change is harder than prescriptive change. Okay? First question is, what rhythms and structures do you need to establish to slow down? What rhythm and structures do you need to establish to slow down? Here's the heart question. Where are you finding your value? Are you holding yourself to and judging yourself by standards of productivity or performance that's impossible to meet? And finally, I, I like this one too, is your day spent earning the right to exist? Think about that one. And the last one is easy. Calculate, not really, calculate how many weeks you have left if you live until you're 80. Take out your calculator, figure that out. Then ponder this for a week in your spare moments. When you're driving to work, when you're, uh, whenever you have a break at 3 in the morning when you wake up remembering you forgot something, ponder it this. And write down what your priority would be if this were your last week. Because it might be. Let's pray.